you go back to the Reformation, Matthew, just think of a statement like this. Martin Luther said this, doctrine is heaven. I mean, is that what the typical evangelical today would say about doctrine? Oh, doctrine is heaven. <laughs> no way. They say doctrine is boring and dry and intellectual because it hasn't been infused with the kind of historic warmth and experiential and practical emphases that it was in former ages. And so we're trying to we're trying to bring that back in a contemporary way, addressing contemporary issues. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. When we think about systematic theology, there are so many different types on the market today, many different types, and many types that disagree with one another. We could think, for example, of the ecumenical movement and many of the ecumenical uh, theologians or systematic theologies that have come out of that movement. We could also think of progressive, the progressive movement, or even Protestant liberalism, and the, the many systematic theologies there, uh, or more recently, postmodernism, and uh, the many postmodern theologians and the influence they've had on systematic theology, or perhaps closer to home, we may think of uh, evangelicalism, or perhaps a, a, a slice within evangelicalism, uh, a certain biblicist approach to systematic theology. But in recent years, there's been a move away from some of these other systematic theologies that I've mentioned to reform systematic theology. In fact, I think it's fair to say there's been a resurgence or a renewal, or uh, we, could, we could say a regaining uh, of interest in reform systematic theology in particular. Part of the reason for that is the reading of old books in which many Christians today have, have rediscovered uh, the, the reformers or the Puritans, for example, or um, more modern reform thinkers like Herman Bovink, uh, and Gerhardus Voss, and, and so many others. But another reason is simply because reform systematic theology is, and many have made this case, is more theologically consistent and faithful to Scripture itself. Well, that just raises the question, though, what does reform systematic theology look like? What are some of its distinctives? What sets it apart from many other different types or approaches to systematic theology? I am really pleased to have with me today Joel Beakey to answer some of these questions and to dive into reform systematic theology in particular to help us understand what it is and, and uh, what type of influence it can have today. Uh, Joel Beakey is president and professor of systematic theology and homiletics at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary. He's also a pastor of the Heritage Reform Congregation in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He, he's authored many, many books. I can't even begin to, to name them all. I think some of our listeners are familiar with a number of them. I'll just mention a few. Uh, you may be familiar with his, his large book, A Puritan Theology, an excellent book, uh, given a theological presentation, but one from a Puritan uh, perspective and point of view. 
Uh, he's also in uh, in the works right now. Volume one has just released uh, his Reform Systematic Theology. Uh, volume one is focusing on Revelation and God. Uh, of course, there's there's many other volumes uh, to come. Four volumes, I believe, total. This is with Crossway. It is uh, a superb introduction to Reform Systematic Theology. It's uh, not just Joel Beakey, but his co-author Paul Smalley. And I want to mention one other book that that Joel Beakey has has authored recently. This one, too, is by Crossway. It's called Reformed Preaching. And here he looks at some of the, the well, the, what we could call the experiential side of Reformed Expositional Preaching. Joel, thank you for joining me on the Credo Podcast. Great to be with you, Matthew. Well, when we talk about reform systematic theology, some of our listeners may not know exactly what that means. I, I appreciate how in in your first volume, your first systematic theology, uh, you you essentially begin by laying out what reform systematic theology is all about. You call it not only Christian, but Catholic and evangelical, uh, as well as uh, we we could say reformational or reformed. Uh, maybe we could begin there. Why is it, and why is it important to first and foremost understand systematic theology as Catholic in nature? What do you mean by that? Well, by by Catholic, we we mean the original meaning of the word Catholic, which is universal. So, in the broadest circle, Reformed theology stands in a larger Christian tradition that includes um, the ecumenical creeds, particularly we think of the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, Athanasian Creed, and Chalcedonian. Uh, So in these creeds you find broad Christian statements about the doctrine of God as a triune God, three, three persons in one essence, as well as the doctrine of Christ, uh, two natures in one person, and uh, these are just universally held beliefs, and so the Reformed branch of theology would, would, would be within this broadest circle, and really, if you're outside of this circle, you're, you belong to a sect and not to the Christian faith, so we begin there by just uh, showing people that Reformed theology is consistent with the Catholic, that is the universal um, theology of of the Christian Church of all ages. So you have to think of the word Catholic as something entirely different from the Roman Catholic Church, for example, which is a title they've taken to themselves because they're saying our Church is universal, but the word Catholicity simply means things that Christians hold in common across many different traditions. When we use the word Catholic, it, it like you just said, it's also conveying a certain orthodoxy uh, to it as well, uh, to, to say we're, we're holding hands with those who have come before us, uh, the, the Church Universal, and in doing so, we are claiming or reclaiming at times uh, orthodox doctrine that's faithful uh, to, to the text itself. Now, you not only describe your systematic theology as Christian and Catholic, but as evangelical. Uh, typically, when people hear the word evangelical, uh, scholars or 
churchgoers alike, they may think of David Bevington's uh, four marks of what it means to be an evangelical. And, and here Bevington is describing uh, some of the, the history of evangelicalism, and he lists biblicism, uh, crucicentrism, conversionism, and activism. Uh, you make the point, though, that as helpful as those may be, um, there's much more, and, and we, shouldn't, um, we shouldn't neglect a, a deeper meaning to, to the term evangelical, uh, in which you say evangelical originally means reformational, uh, and that takes us back to the Reformation and the five solas of the Reformation. Why is it that this understanding understanding of evangelical uh, is so important to systematic theology? Yes, well, Bevington has you know says a lot of good things about evangelicalism, but I think his view is a more is a more recent one has taken hold and people are embracing that. But historically, Luther himself said that, you know, he was an evangelical and he was teaching evangelical theology. And really the word evangelical just comes from theoangelion, uh, which, which means it's, it's good news. And the Reformers saw themselves as bringing the good news of the gospel that was grounded in Scripture. And so they viewed themselves as being controlled by evangelical theology. So if you'd said to uh, Calvin, for example, are you an evangelical? And he, said, he would say, well, well of course, my, all my theology is evangelical. So I think we do ourselves a disservice when we think that evangelicalism was born in the 18th century. The Reformers and the Puritans were very evangelical, very gospel-oriented, very much preaching a free offer of grace to, unconditionally to all sinners, and therefore they too are called evangelical. So to, to my mind, the word evangelicalism and evangelical really hark back to the beginnings of the 16th century Reformation. Now, some evangelicals would take issue. I, I agree with what you've said, and I've even defended that uh, in print in different places, but some evangelicals, and you've probably had this experience yourself, will push back against that or, or protest that, uh, ironic as that sounds. Uh, you, you think of, um, for example, someone like Roger Olson, uh, who argues that, well, evangelicalism doesn't have or maybe shouldn't even have any type of confessional boundaries. Uh, we, we don't want to define doctrinal boundaries. Uh, is that, do you, do you think that is um, something that could be advantageous to evangelicalism or, or systematic theology, or is that something that could actually harm it? Well, it can not only harm it, it has harmed it. And I've got close friends, for example, who adhere to the Reformed faith who say, we don't even use the word evangelical anymore because it's now stripped of all meaning mm. because it's such a generic term now. It doesn't really mean much at all. And I'm kicking back against that and saying, no, we can't let liberals hijack and change the original meaning of the word evangelical. Let's, um, let's hark back to the Reformation, state what the Reformers said, and let's try to maintain uh, that the word evangelical is packed with substance and that it does refer to faithful gospel proclamation of the unadulterated Word of God. 
that's reflected very well in the historical Reformation confessions, the three forms of unity of the German-Dutch tradition, the Westminster Standards of the English-Scottish tradition, and the uh, Helvetic confessions of the Swiss tradition. They are all regarding themselves, uh, and, the, and their authors regarded them at least, as uh, evangelical confessions. Now, when we talk about evangelical, and, and rightly so, you're moving us from just a, a general understanding of that term to something that's historically rooted, not just in 18th century, but the 16th century. Uh, like you just mentioned, it brings us to the many confessions, the, the catechisms even, um, that uh, some of these Reformed thinkers or uh, churches or, or even assemblies wrote. Uh, that, that of that raises uh, another issue that, well, it's not just reformational, but um, in terms of the five solas, but we perhaps we could be more specific. There's we, we could say it's it's reformed in that sense, and, and so someone someone like Calvin immediately comes to mind. Now, uh, the word reformed that may throw some people off because when they they hear that word, they immediately for all kinds of all kinds of reasons, they immediately think of the doctrine of predestination. And so they, they may object at this point that, well, you know, why would we uh, center our, our systematic theology around a doctrine like predestination? But would you, say, would you say that is more or less a caricature of what reform systematic theology is, as, as much as the reform tradition values predestination? Predestination, the Reformed have always insisted, is a significant doctrine, but it's by no means the center of the whole system. And to argue, for example, as some have done, that predestination is the center of Calvinism and that it's kind of the be-all and end-all of Calvinism is, is, is really uh, a caricature of, of, of Calvin's own theology. Uh, Calvin does weave the doctrine of predestination throughout his theology, as do many of the Reformers and the Puritans, but they weave a lot of doctrines throughout their theology. I think that when it comes to the Reformed faith, you can't pin down any one doctrine as controlling the whole system, because in the Reformed faith, every Reformer strives to be so biblical they want to, bear, bring to bring to the foreground all the doctrines of the Bible. And since the Bible itself cannot be centered just on one doctrine, so Reformed theology, being very biblical theology, cannot be confined to one doctrine. One other aspect uh, you know, of, of Reformed systematic theology uh, is its focus on covenant, for example. And, and you've just been mentioning how uh, as much as we we might value uh, predestination, we have to be careful that we don't buy into that caricature uh, of, of making you know, that belief that uh, you know there's there's one particular uh, doctrine that that uh, takes over all the rest. Uh, Reform systematic theology, historically speaking, is is far richer than that. Um, uh, certainly, predestination has. Um, a very important role to play in it, but uh, it's not to the neglect of, of many other aspects of both biblical and systematic theology. And one of those, one of those is covenant. Uh, covenant, 
uh, has a defining role in not only how we read the storyline of Scripture, but then also how we do systematic theology. Now, you're a Presbyterian, I'm a, I'm a Baptist, um, and, and so we're going to have some differences as to exactly how we, we might understand covenant working itself out, say, in our ecclesiology, for example. But I would certainly agree with what, what you write and what you say when, when you argue that covenant is, and maybe we could be broader than that, say God's faithfulness to his covenant in Scripture is so important, not only to how we do biblical theology, but systematic theology. I love this quote. Uh, you quote at one point Robert Rollock, who says, all the word of God appertains to some covenant, for God speaks nothing to man without the covenant. Uh, that quotation there uh, takes us into one uh, domain of systematic theology, revelation, and shows us that even when we look at how God communicates, or, or as Calvin talked about, how God accommodates himself to us, he reveals himself many times through different covenants. Uh, maybe you could elaborate on this and, and just talk about, uh, for a second, help our, our listeners to understand why covenant is, you know, they may think of it in terms of biblical studies, but actually covenant has a lot to say in terms of systematics. Right, right. Well, the term covenant, for example, first of all, is, is used several hundred times in the Bible, at least more than 300 times, I believe. And the Bible recognizes a plurality of covenants that God made with his people at, at various points in history. So you have a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You have a covenant with uh, <clears throat> Israel and Mount Sinai, with David regarding the kingdom and uh, the new covenant in Christ, uh, Jeremiah 31, Hebrews 8, that type of thing. But all of these particular covenants are various embodiments and manifestations, growing manifestations to be sure, of the one eternal covenant, the covenant of grace. And so Reformed systematic theology uh, teaches hermeneutically, that is how you interpret scripture, that you should consider when you're interpreting scripture what part of the Bible you're interpreting, its context, and then look at that in, through the covenantal relationship between God and his people. So predestination itself, for example, uh, needs to be looked at through covenantal eyes, and that's why the Reformers were fond of saying God is faithful to his own, to his covenant, to, to their seed, and he will draw from among that seed in accord with his eternal predestinating decree. So in other words, the Reformed faith believes that election, for example, which is the branch of predestination where God chooses to save sinners, that election is marinated in, in, in covenantal grace, and it's God's normal way to save from among the seed of believers. And therefore, though those believers, those, those children of believers, must come to personal faith and repentance themselves, uh, election is not to be seen by them as discouraging doctrine, but an mm. encouraging one. Election is a friend of sinners, because without election there would be no hope for anyone to be saved, since we're depraved and we, we won't choose God by nature. So election, God's faithful covenant in bringing the elect into saving grace, and the whole doctrine of salvation 
in the reform mind, this is all tied together in one bundle, an optimistic bundle, that God is in the business of saving sinners, and therefore we, we are encouraged to fly to him to repent of our sins and believe in Christ alone. Now, I can already tell from what you just said that if, if we follow this route, if we follow this through what you're saying, well, then systematic theology is not just, it's not some mere abstract, you know, sp- speculating. Uh, it's, it's not even some, you know, oftentimes people think of it this way as a, as a type of cold, rationalistic, doctrinal experiment. But it, it's, it's very, exp- it, it, we could use the word experiential in this sense, in the good sense of that word. Um, if, if we understand what God's done in eternity, how he's manifested himself through covenants and done so so personally through his own son, if we understand further that uh, the Holy Spirit uh, has applied uh, the work of Christ to us, uniting us to Christ, well then systematic theology and, and what God has done in history, now that takes on very a very personal note uh, in, in which theology and doctrine should ultimately lead to doxology. If, if we understand who God is, what he's done to save us, and how the Holy Spirit is continually uh, working within us progressively, though, uh, then shouldn't that lead us to, to, to a, a very um, worshipful experience as we do theology? It, would you say, and, and I, know, I know the answer is yes to this, because uh, I've read so much of what you've written before, you, you do a great job of connecting these dots between doctrine and doxology, but maybe you could just put your finger on this nerve for a moment and, and just blow away this, this caricature, this myth that reformed systematic theology especially is somehow antithetical to, to uh, spirituality. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, I've been laboring most of my life trying to diffuse that. Um, and I'm not saying that there aren't certain Reformed theologians who do come across rather dry and cerebral and intellectual only, but historically, uh, that was not the case with any of them. All the Reformers, all the Puritans, I don't know of a single exception, who didn't want to minister to the whole man. Um, that's why we take it as, at our seminary the motto, head, heart, hands. Mm. We want to minister to the whole man. And so in this new Reformed Systematic Theology, uh, Volume 1 and the the volumes to come. What Paul Smalley and I are trying to do is we're looking at every single doctrine in this holistic, comprehensive way, warm way, that is typical of Reformed theology of all generations, up unto our own with with few exceptions. And that is to say this, we're approaching each doctrine first by giving you the biblical data. What does the Bible say about this doctrine? And we spell it out with often quoting hundreds of texts, um, and just spelling it out in detail, exactly what the Bible teaches. Then we go to church history and look at how the Holy Spirit led the church um, in church history uh, through errors and corrections and everything, bringing the church into greater light on this doctrine, and we look at uh, historical material that is, is favorable or unfavorable to what Scripture is teaching. And then we move into what we call experiential theology, how does the believer really not only intellectually grasp this doctrine, but now experientially taste it, savor it? How does he say 
of this doctrine with Jeremiah, thy word was sweeter than honey and honeycomb, and I did eat it, and it was sweet to my taste. So how does the believer spiritually partake of this doctrine in such a way that it satisfies his inmost being and helps him break out in, in praise to God into doxology? And then the last part of each chapter um, seeks to summarize the practical takeaways from this doctrine. How, how does it implement, how does it in, impact not only my, my heart, but from my heart, how does it impact my, my life, my hands and my feet? Um, so we try to put hands and feet to the doctrine to minister to the whole man. And our goal, then, is by the time you finish each chapter, we want you to be breaking out in doxology and worshiping God. And uh, obviously the book has just come out, but I've had some close friends who've, who've um, been dipping into some chapters. And uh, it's interesting that the most encouraging responses I've received so far are precisely what you're getting at. Um, people are emailing me notes and saying, there's something about this Reformed Systematic Theology that has a flavor to it that makes me just want to worship God as I read it. And that's exciting to me when I hear those kinds of responses. Uh, and I, I do hope and pray that um, through our feeble efforts in, in this work that we can be instrumental in, in having people connect more with the reality of doctrine. I mean, if you go back to the Reformation, Matthew, just think of a statement like this. Martin Luther said this, doctrine is heaven. I mean, is that what the typical evangelical today would say about doctrine? Oh, doctrine is heaven. <laughs> no way. They say doctrine is boring and dry and intellectual because it hasn't been infused with the kind of historic warmth and experiential and practical emphases that it was in former ages. And so we're trying to, we're trying to bring that back in a contemporary way addressing contemporary issues, because we firmly believe, both Paul and I, that doctrine is heaven. By these things men live. The, the doctrinal truths of the Bible feed my soul. They give me life. They give me vitality. They make me end in doxology so that I say, oh, the depth of the wisdom of, of the knowledge of God, his ways are past finding out. I rejoice in him. I glorify him. He's altogether lovely to me. That's what doctrine should do for us so we end in god and we long to be with jesus forever in celestial bliss we've been talking to joel beakey about reform systematic theology and what is what that involves but let's take a break and hear from one of our sponsors midwestern seminary's doctor of philosophy degree program is designed to equip leaders interested in building up the church the Ph.D. Biblical Studies program at Midwestern Seminary provides opportunities for advanced research and preparation in theology in an environment passionate about God's primary plan for the advancement of the gospel, the local church. Choose from multiple emphases and let your advanced degree open up new opportunities for ministry in our rapidly changing world. With our modular program of study, you can remain in your current ministry setting. But we've also recently introduced the residency, an experiential component to the Ph.D. track where local doctoral students receive one-on-one -on -one coaching and mentoring and a community context in which to bolster their studies. Get your Ph.D. today for the church. We are back from our break and ready to continue a conversation with Joel Beakey about the nature of systematic theology. I, I love that 
quote uh, from Luther, uh, doctrine is heaven. Uh, in so many ways, I, I think, Joel, that, that really captures uh, what you've done here. I, I would agree uh, you so well, you and Paul Smalley, uh, you do us such a favor because uh, you connect those dots between doctrine and doxology and, and show that, well, why is it that we have been uh, divorcing these two, bifurcating uh, one from the other? And, and that's actually done us a great disservice uh, in, in all kinds of ways. I, I think, for example, of the, uh, the it, it, it seems to be an ever-growing uh, stream of, of evangelicals who take on a, a certain anti-intellectual approach. Maybe maybe we could call it, uh, you call it at one point, an anti-intellectual biblicism uh, towards doctrine or, or theology or systematic theology in particular. Uh, th- this There's all kinds of reasons for this. S- sometimes it's because they've been burned by institutions that have gone the direction of Protestant liberalism, and, and that's regrettable and understandable. At other times, though, it is a cry... On on the terms of the Bible itself, as if well, I don't believe in that systematic theology stuff because I just believe in the Bible, and uh, I I just believe what the Bible teaches. And uh, so you've you've quoted Luther saying that you know doctrine is heaven. I think for some of these individuals, they might say doctrine is hell um, because it it seems to be just you know completely antagonistic to just being faithful to the Bible itself. Maybe you could address that for a minute. Maybe some of our listeners are feeling that tension in in their own um, church experience growing up. Why is it? Uh, why is it that this anti-intellectual biblicism is is actually not helpful, but could be poisonous to systematic theology? Yeah, yeah. Well, the the whole issue here is balance. You know, God has made us with a mind with a soul, with, a, with, with a hands and feet to go out and, and share the gospel and, and live the gospel. In any theology that doesn't bring all of these imbalance, which is, of course, what Scripture does, you see it everywhere, um, is, is, is prone to be an imbalanced theology. And so, so one of the goals of, of a systematician ought to be to take all that the Bible teaches on a particular subject and bring it to bear in such a way that it ministers to the whole man. And so the whole idea of divorcing head and heart, for example, or seeing them opposed to each other, is, is really foreign, foreign to Scripture. Historically, that can maybe be construed to a kind of false kind of experientialism, experience for its own sake, or false kind of pietism. But in the Bible, really... A genuine piety is, is, is called, in the Old Testament especially, the fear of the Lord. In the New Testament, it's called godliness. And the Bible doesn't get embarrassed by these things, but the Bible sees it as part of the whole package that you're ministering to the whole man. And so the goal of our systematic theology is to, to do all of that by taking each doctrine. Let me give you a quick example, Matthew. Maybe this will help. All right, so I can get on the pulpit next Sunday, and I can take... Um, Let's just take a doctrine off the top of my head. Let's take uh, the intercession of Christ. Now, I can read Hebrews 7, say that you know Christ always lives to make intercession for us. I can say to the congregation, or to the church family, this means that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he's remembering us from moment to moment. Um, if, we're, if, we're, 
true believers. And uh, that's, that's a precious doctrine, and that's meaningful to think that everyone likes to be remembered. Well, that, that's great. Um, that doesn't sound too dry, but I didn't say that to you right now, did I, in an excited voice like, this is incredible. He's remembering us every moment. So sometimes preachers will get passionate about it and say it, but to have an experiential emphasis that really brings it from the intellect into the heart, you could preach it something like this. I'm going to, I'm going to switch into preaching mode now here, so forgive me, but... Um, Dear church family, do you realize what this means? Uh, this, is, this is unbelievably precious to a believer. The Lord Jesus Christ, my friend, is remembering you every moment at the right hand of the Father. He has the infinite capacity to remember all his children as if each one were an only child at the same time. And so there is tremendous comfort in this, especially when you're in deep afflictions and you're crying out to God and it seems like there's no answer and you're you're coming to your wit's end. You can scarcely pray, and you just cry out to him, Lord Jesus, thou art the praying high priest. Uh, when I can't pray anymore, do thou pray for me at the right hand of the Father. And uh, knowing that he hears those cries and is remembering you always, and that when you can't seem to hang on anymore to him, he is holding fast to you because he's interceding for you every moment. You cannot fall out of his hands. He's the ever-living, interceding high priest. Praise him for his constant intercessions for you. You see, now I am preaching experientially how the believer experiences that doctrine. And then I might go on to say, now practically speaking, you know, you need to take this precious doctrine now, and you need to, you need to go out and intercede for others out of the intercession of Christ. You need to become... A, a wrestler at the throne of grace on behalf of the unbelievers, on behalf of the troubled friends who are believers, who are in great need. Be a prayer warrior yourself. Out of the intercession of Christ, become an interceder for others. Now I've just switched into practical theology. So as we do deal with each doctrine, yes, we're going to give to you intellectually the first part, what it means biblically and how the how the church historians uh, hammered that out in church history. But what we're doing that is unique, or not unique, but fairly uncommon to today's systematic theology, but not to the Reformation, post-Reformation era, is we're then moving on and teaching you how to, to taste this experientially and how to use it practically. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It's something that I'm afraid... Uh, too many preachers today are unfamiliar with, and so they, they go into their study and they study systematic theology, uh, and then they put it aside uh, as if it has no, um, has no bearing on what they do in the pulpit. But uh, the, the example you just gave, intercession of Christ, uh, that there, uh, our listeners, I hope you hear this, it, that, that's a model to, to, uh, to, to imitate uh, as you go into the pulpit, you need to be connecting the dots from the text itself to the, the theological implications of the text, uh, as as Joel Beakey just did, to practical theology. And that certainly will have uh, a major influence on not just what your people think in their heads, but then uh, how their hearts are moved and how they then act uh, through their hands. I love that mm-hmm. that pattern, head, heart, If I can, if I can just... Yeah, if I can just um, 
jump in here to, to show you how important this is. So what happened was I did my book for Crossway Reformed Preaching, which is really on the experiential aspect of preaching, how to do that. And uh, after I signed the contract, a couple weeks later, the editor called me up and said, well, I hear that you're co-authoring a, a Reformed Systematic Theology, which also has this experiential note in it. And I said, yes, that's true. And uh, the editor then said, well, if Crossway is going to become known as the Reformed Experiential Preaching Publisher around the world, shouldn't we be also become known as the Reformed Experiential <laughs> Teaching Publisher around the world? So that you see, they, they, they themselves they felt the connection between them. Yeah. And I said, well, chills ran up and down my spine, actually, when, when uh, this editor called me. This is exactly what I want yeah. people to see. Yeah. Uh, doctrine is alive, and it's, yeah. it, it, it's alive in our experience. It's alive in our mind. It's alive in our lives. Uh, Even in so publishing that, yeah, houses. <laughs> Even in publishing yeah. houses. <laughs> <laughs> yes, oh. yes. Uh, well, well, we're translating right now and publishing uh, Petrus van Maastricht's seven mm-hmm. volumes from Latin on systematic theology, and he was a Dutch further Reformation divine. I think his dates were 1630 to 1706. And uh, it's interesting, as we're doing that now, that I'm noticing he's following exactly the same order, doing biblical material and church history stuff, then the experiential, and then the practical. And so it's one more evidence of uh, how the old divines used to used to do theology. And we're, 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 so we're not inventing this we're just going back to the old way of doing it but 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 putting it into contemporary dress and addressing obviously a whole host of contemporary issues that they hadn't faced yet well and that is why uh when we talk about systematic theology it's so so important to put that word on it first reformed systematic theology because it captures so much of this rich heritage heritage well we've been talking with joel beakey who is the president of Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary. Uh, to our listeners, I would say, if you have not read a book by, by Joel Beakey, uh, you, you, you haven't done yourself a favor, you need to, to go pick up a book by Joel Beakey. Go get his, his recent book on preaching, Reformed Preaching. And if that warms your heart, uh, dive into uh, Volume 1, uh, Revelation and God, of his uh, Reformed Systematic Theology with Paul uh, with with his with his co-author uh, Paul Smalley, uh, Joel. Thank you so much for joining me on the Credo Podcast. Yes, yes, Matthew. And, and let it, let me just say too that the, the the most reasonable place to get books by me is our book ministry here because we're nonprofit. Heritagebooks.org, Heritagebooks.org. You can you can pick up right now uh, both volumes. I believe at fifty percent off. So that that's great. In our conversation with Joel Beakey, we have been introduced to the world of systematic theology. This is the world I love. This is the world I live in. This is the world that I pray and hope that many churchgoers and pastors and students even will, and scholars for that matter, will come to know themselves. Uh, Unfortunately, we live in a day in which uh, systematic theology sometimes receives a bad reputation. There's all kinds of reasons for that. Some, sometimes it may be our own fault, but sometimes it's because there's this anti-systematic bent, a, a type of biblicism that, that thinks, well, uh, I'm completely neutral and objective, and, and I can just uh, come to a Bible verse, and I don't need theology. I, it's just me and my Bible. Well, besides the fact that 
this is a, a very uh, unbiblical individualism or a rugged individualism that's out of step with the Bible itself. Uh, besides that, uh, this type of mentality actually ignores what the Bible is meant to be and what the Bible is meant to do. Uh, the Bible is actually meant to drive us to theological construction as we read the storyline of Scripture and interpret that storyline it is naturally then meant to lead us into theological development as we ask questions about uh, different doctrines of the faith as to what we are to believe. We are driven to theological conclusions from the text itself. Well, as we look at the theological scene today, it can be overwhelming and sometimes discouraging. Uh, there's so many different types of systematic theology, some that are more ecumenical or progressive or liberal, some that are more, more postmodern. What I love about Joel Beakey is he encourages us, even um, pushes us, uh, demands, in fact, that we return to a Reformed systematic theology. As we've seen in this conversation, that means our systematic theology is not only Christian, but it's Catholic. Uh, Catholic, not, in, not, not Roman Catholic, but Catholic is in, uh, consistent with uh, Christian orthodoxy, uh, those down through the ages. And not only Christian and Catholic, but uh, it's evangelical, not evangelical in, in a broad, uh, empty sense, as if there's no theological boundaries or center, but evangelical in the reformational sense, the five solas of the Reformation, and not just the five solas, but uh, going deeper, reformational and reformed, uh, bringing us back to the nature of who God is, what he's done, and the type of grace that he has bestowed upon us in Jesus Christ. There's a, an, an old quote from Cornelius Van Til, and I want to close with it. He says, it is some, sometimes contended that ministers need not be trained in systematic theology if only they know their Bibles. But Bible-trained instead of systematically trained preachers frequently preach error. Systematics helps ministers to preach the whole counsel of God and thus to make God central in their work. I think Cornelius Van Til hits the nail right on the head. If you are a pastor or a preacher or a churchgoer out there, I hope that this uh, admonition resonates with you, that we're never meant to separate doctrine from doxology. In fact, it's just the opposite. These two are married to one another. And as Cornelius Van Til says here, we can't claim to be Bible trained if we're not systematically trained. Uh, this is the type of preacher that every preacher must be. Otherwise, he will not only preach air, but he will be incapable and unable to counsel the people of God with the Word of God. Systematic theology, reformed systematic theology, as it turns out, is absolutely central to the work of church life, to the work of academic scholarship and to the work of the Christian life in particular. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation a conversation where doctrine matters.